Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to January 14, 2014 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, my first guest is Gabriel Peterberg, Professor of History and Director of the Gustav von Grunenbaum Center for Near East Studies at UCLA to reflect on what Ariel Sharon wrought throughout his many military and political campaigns, his first, second, and third acts in Israel and throughout the Middle East. Then, Chief Curator at the Orange County Museum of Art, Dan Cameron, returns to Ask a Leader to lay out what themes he's pulled together at the current exhibition entitled, California's Landscape into Abstraction. Who knew the Orange County Museum of Art collection could express things just this way. Don't go away. We'll be right back after station break. Welcoming you back to the show, Ask a Leader. We have Gabriel Peterberg, Professor of History and Director of the Gustav von Grunenbaum Center for the Near East Studies at UCLA. Just the person for a much-needed nuanced appraisal. He received his Bachelor of Arts and Master's of Arts at Tel Aviv University and his Doctor of Philosophy from the University of Oxford. He taught at the University of Durham, England and Ben-Gurion University of the Negev in Israel. Peterberg writes and teaches of the history of the Ottoman Empire and the Mediterranean in the early modern period and modern themes uh, like colonialism, Zionism, and Palestine-Israel. He writes for the New Left Review and London Review of Books. And I read a really lovely one he had published in 2006 that was easily uh, accessed on the Internet. Thankfully, and among his academic interests are the critique of Orientalism, Nationalism, and Zionism. Recent books pertinent to today's discussion are The Returns of Zionism, Myths, Politics, and Scholarship in Israel, London, and New York. Verso is the publisher and was published in 2008. He will eventually come to us from Westwood at UCLA. Professor Peterberg, are you there? Yes, I am. Okay, it's good. So good to hear from you, what we have today, as I was laying out the the phases of Ariel Sharon's public life, that is his military as well as his uh, political career, elected eventually after he was appointed, from the very start, born uh, Ariel Scheinerman in Palestine in 1928 into a family of intellectuals, and according to a piece I read in The Economist, while his neighbors were building their socialist commune, his Belarusian parents erected a fence around their home to keep such plebeian ideas out, and I end that quote with The Economist. Well, since we have the privilege of talking to Professor Peterberg, an historian, I'd like to uh, have you help us interpret what that kind of a start means for an Israeli national. Well, <clears throat> I don't think he was uh, exceptional in that sense. The family was exceptional. He was born into one of the uh, forms of cooperative settlement uh, in pre-48 Palestine, um, which were, of course, the, uh, part of the project of labor Zionism, which was the dominant force behind uh, the Zionist project. They had a few forms of cooperative settlements. The kibbutz is the best known. He was born in a form that has slightly more private property and production called Moshav, which was in the center of Israel, and the place was called Kfar Malal. And this is the combination of colonization in which there is 
cooperative agricultural work and military activity and defense or offense, depending on your point of view. Yes. Uh, and he right. was part of that, and it's true that especially his mother uh, instilled in him a more aggressive view of what defending his territory, his colony, uh, were. And in that sense, he imbibed, if you will, uh, military aggression uh, from the outset, from, from his childhood. The mother's milk. Well, yes. that's, that does inform a great deal about the the entire profile i think that um and so uh there and we'll we'll talk about that um uh, because i noticed from the accounts from 19 well a little bit about 1948 but 1955 mm-hmm. uh and and uh, and battles he engaged that they that uh, and this is from a kind of a mainstream i wouldn't call it a chip on the shoulder lefty uh journalist uh that would be um i'm trying to find what his uh, that reported that that uh, he deliberately sought firefights. That was in those earlier campaigns uh, in uh, the the group, the 101 group. But mm-hmm. um, that killed uh, in that in that case killed a lot of women and children in the village of Kibuya. Kibia. Kibia. Thank you so much. And then it's, it seemed like that asymmetry of the meeting the vulnerable appointment. And vanquishing them, those are civilians. Many, most of the time, they were men, or many times, I should say. I'm not, I don't have the, the whole quantitative breakdown, but women and children. 69. Okay, okay. So um, I'm just wanting you to talk to us about what the meaning is of a career where he sees those asymmetric sorts of huge advantages over his opponents and uh, that, that legacy in terms of what he's sown in amongst the Arabs, the, uh, the Arab population, and what he would try to do later on. I don't think uh, p- people would forget that kind of a gesture. No, I mean, uh, if, first of all, to put it in context, uh, the, the, the activities in the 1950s, he was, he had, uh, after 48, he had retired from the army um, and went to study, but he was called back by uh, Ben-Gurion, basically to head a commander unit called 101, which was later integrated into uh, the main <coughs> paratroopers um, regiment. And what they did was uh, uh, there were infiltrations of Israel at that period, partly by Palestinian guerrilla called Fadain, and yes. partly by refugees who were trying to go back to their homes. Uh, most of which had been destroyed by then, but nonetheless had been trying to go back to what then became the State of Israel. And uh, uh, that unit started what was called the reprisal policy or the retaliation policy, in which that commander unit uh, would raid um, Palestinian villages and towns in the West Bank, which was then under Jordanian rule, (coughs) excuse me, and would wreak havoc as much as possible. That um, uh, unfortunate um, or disastrous raid into the village of uh, Kibia in 1953 followed the Fadain attack on, a, on an Israeli um, frontier town. And uh, what they did was to booby-trap uh, a series of homes in which it is quite clear they knew there were no fighters, but only civilians, and mostly women and children. They mean Sharon. They, we want to make sure we've got an antecedent following them. It's, that was Sharon's military group. 
Yes, the, the 101 commando unit. Okay. And they blew up the houses, which, um, uh, which resulted in the death of the official count is 69 uh, civilians um, in, in, that, in that village of Kibia. And this created uh, an enormous uh, scandal, international scandal, uh, uh, including the suspension of um, American relations for a very short while. Short while. Uh, yeah. And um, it was so bad that Ben-Gurion had to lie in public in the Knesset and uh, deny any knowledge of the Israeli government that such an operation had taken place. And just remind us, who, who was president at that time? I'm not. Yeah, it's not a matter of president. The, the main political figure in the Israeli system is the prime minister. No, no, the American president, when you said this had an international impact. Um, if I remember correctly, it was Eisenhower, but... Um, I, I think it was Eisenhower. Okay. So, uh, so there again, it's that asymmetry. I, I think that's going to be the theme here of our uh, investigating uh, the legacy of a, a military and a political life of Ariel Sharon. For those of you who've just tuned in to Ask a Leader at KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, my guest is Gabriel Peterberg, Professor of History and Director of the Gustav von Grunenbaum Center for Near East Studies at UCLA, assessing the life and legacy of Israeli military and political leader Ariel Sharon, who died last uh, over last saturday i believe it was and so um and uh, so these kinds of gestures especially in the middle east where there are so many gestures these are not lost on a people that were uh, at the receiving end of such brutality. And so that's a, a major part of what is always being considered in negotiations in the peace negotiations between arabs and jews. Well, I, I don't think, I think the Middle East is uh, not more um, inflicted by gestures than any other area of the world, and uh, it has its own cultural features, it's true, but I don't think we need to go into specific cultural attributes that are true only for the Middle East and not for other cultures and other diplomatic negotiations. But what is certainly true of Sharon, that's certainly one of the major sides, of his life and, and activity, is the brutality, the ruthless brutality and violence, whether as a soldier in the field, and then commander in the field, and then a politician. I, had he been, um, say, a Serb politician rather than Israeli, he would have been dispatched to The Hague unceremoniously for a standing trial for, for war there's well, no question about that. Well, there was a uh, a critic that uh, was a phalangist commander that was implicated in the killings at the Sabra Shatila massacres in southern Lebanon in 19, I believe, 81? 82. 82. And so uh, how would you, how directly would you implicate Ariel Sharon in those critics being silenced? Well, <clears throat> first of all, he was uh, found guilty of or, or indirectly responsible for the massacres in Shabra and Sabra and Shatila by an Israeli commission of inquiry, state commission of inquiry headed by uh, Kahan, um, yes. by Judge Kahan. And as a result, he had to, after resisting it, he had to resign from his position as defense minister. So even an Israeli uh, commission of inquiry found him indirectly responsible. What actually happened is that uh, Israel had a long-standing and quite shameful alliance with uh, uh, basically a fascist organization 
uh, in Maronite Lebanon uh, by the name of the Phalanges in, in, in English or yes, Kataib in Arabic. Ah. And uh, after, as a result of the Lebanon war, which we, go, we won't go into at this stage in great detail, um, Sharon and the Israeli army uh, surrounded the camps in Sabra and Shatila and in coordination with the Phalanges, uh, enabled their entrance to the um, camps, knowing full well that they would perpetrate a massacre there, a vengeance for the assassination of President uh, uh, Pierre M. Bashir Jmail. And uh, what happened consequently or subsequently was that certain victims of the, of the massacre tried to bring Sharon to trial in um, Belgium. And at some point, the main perpetrator, the commander of these Kataib troops who went into, who had gone into the camps by the name of Eli Hebeka, was, yes. uh, it was alleged at least, or reported, that he was willing to testify against Sharon. And he was assassinated immediately afterwards. Now, who assassinated him and why, and whether this was part of an attempt to prevent him from testifying, we don't know. We don't know yet, but that Sharon is clearly part of the Sabra and Shatila massacre, even if the Israeli troops obviously didn't go into the camps and perpetrated the massacre itself, but his responsibility is clear. He gave access to those phalanges. Oh, yeah, and he made sure that the camps were sealed while they were uh, going on a rampage of, 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 of killing and brutalizing and raping uh, for for a few days. Well, I I want to, while we're uh, threading all of these themes here, I, I I noticed in the that exquisite documentary that was released, I believe, about over a year ago, the Gatekeepers, and we saw some introspection on behalf on the, of the the five of the most recent leaders of the Shin Bet, the Israeli secret police, and they they had a change of heart. They had an intellectual reckoning with with some of the. So what they observed of their involvement in this eh, not not so uh, not so symmetric engagement of the enemy either, uh, but I just want to know: Did you do you think it seemed like Ariel Sharon ever reached some kind of a reckoning like that? And we're well, I'm I'm going forward because we're not going to have a lot more time, but um, uh, because we want to address to his forming that new party out of uh, away from Likud, but Kadima forward or onward. Um, but do you think that Ariel Sharon? Was poised uh, after all the gestures of the um, put the, getting the wall um, project underway that would splinter uh, Palestine, splintered the West Bank. That is, uh, was Ariel Sharon ever reconsidering anything that he had been involved with in his past? No, I don't think so. I think uh, what he may have done regarding his personal life, but not his political and military life. No, I think it's uh, uh, the, what the heads of Shabak, the Israeli uh, uh, secret service, uh, internal oh, security Shinbet. service. Well, it, it, the full acronym is Shabak. Okay, I don't mix it, mix it up with the it's others. It's not a mistake, but uh, the, the Shabak, the K stands for Klali in Hebrew, which is general. Okay. Uh, general security services. Um, and it, what they do is that is a, a familiar <coughs> a ritual which which many Israeli security, whether it's military or intelligence people, 
go, which is that they do those horrible things while they're in service, and then they have a bad or a revelation of bad conscience, which is supposed to be like a purgatory, in which they reveal what they had done and uh, how sorry they are or how it bothered or it's bothering their conscience at the moment. And the, the, the film is an important film because it has a lot of information, although the tone is sometimes objectionable. But um, Sharon was not that type, um, and um, he ha- didn't have any um, regrets as such. You have to remember that he is the main person in Israeli history who actually uh, raised illegal settlements and rolled Israel back. Uh, he's the one who carried out this mission for Begin uh, in the wake of the peace treaty with Egypt. And he's the one who removed settlements from Gaza uh, as the result of his own uh, unilateral disengagement. So removing settlements is actually, uh, after building them, by the way, uh, was, not Char- was not something Sharon had not done. But I don't think he had, uh, had he not fallen into coma, he would have changed his basic vision, which was to make the establishment of a Palestinian entity of any sort um, in Western Palestine possible. He would have. He would not have. He would not, okay, he would right. not have. That's because I think people are divided on their interpretation of what those gestures were, and it was, and it was pivotal. I just want to just interject. It's not, it's not, it's a small uh, scale thing, but it, it was just a day or two before his stroke. I think only a day before that his son was implicated in some very elaborate kind of uh, financing with uh, Russian companies and Israeli companies. So it's sort of a that that the Sharon family was stacking up some. <laughs> Pretty, uh, a huge fortune. An amazing portfolio that they never are going to have to answer for. But you were saying that maybe uh, as far as the uh, implication in uh, Sharon in the Sabra Shatila massacres, that you said that, that that's still pending. That could still could be a sort of posthumous kinds of trial. But, that, but so I guess as we're wrapping up with all of these ends I'm putting out there, they're still pretty loose. I want to know from you as a historian how much value there is in examining a life such as Ariel Sharon's. And... How long do you think it will take where there will become an objective understanding about what he was responsible, if ever there is going to be that possibility? Well, there will be more um, unearthing of documents, which are at the moment classified, um, and there will be more people coming forward and testifying. After all, we're talking about very, very recent history. I think it's worthwhile studying him because, in my view, on the Israeli side, after Ben-Gurion, he's the most influential, or together with Ben-Gurion, perhaps, the singular most influential individual. There are processes that are not even to that limit uh, what an individual can do. But within these limits, together with Ben-Gurion, he's the most influential figure on the uh, Palestinian-Israeli conflict. There's no question about that. He, he's most responsible for making the occupation or the rule of Israel over uh, the West Bank and Gaza, irreversible, basically. That's huge. That's huge. And that's where uh, the the so-called, I'm going to call it the light touch that Secretary of State John Kerry and Joe Biden and others negotiating, bring the negoti- reinvigorate the negotiations. That, that It's a light touch compared to that. What's been now, what are the facts in the ground in the West Bank throughout the whole Israeli-Palestine geography there? So I think it was most valuable 
Professor Peterberg, that we were able to have your very grounded historic perspective and well grounded and well informed perspective of Ariel Sharon as the the monumentalism of him is being considered and I, I think everybody I want to advise everybody and I think Professor Peterberg would join me in saying uh, it's really important to have a critical eye on the coverage of the reflections on Ariel Sharon's life and for people to uh, keep an open mind about subsequent kinds of uh, hearings about the measures that where he has been implicated. Well, um, I, I would just uh, maybe conclude by saying that uh, what Kerry, Secretary Kerry, is doing now, whatever the prospects for it are, and I'm, I'm, they're not great, is basically uh, what has already been said by Sharon's geopolitical map of Western Palestine. Okay. He said the parameters, and uh, now what they are negotiating is, in my view, if anything, is the size of the Palestinian Bantustan that will... The size emerge. of the which? Of the Palestinian Bantustan. Ah, that will emerge. Bantustan. If anything emerges, I don't think much will. Which is the, the term used which in how South Africa mm-hmm. or other uh, colonialized African nations were partitioned, essentially, and where there is no uh, connecting real estate between those individual pieces. Yes, that, that will... That is what Kerry is right now negotiating and, uh, or trying to negotiate or trying to create a process of negotiations. But the limits on these very um, ill-fated negotiations, in my view, have been set by Sharon's vision. Really. Okay. Well, folks, keep tuned with that. I want to thank you, Professor Gabriel Peterberg, a history of and the director of the Gustav von Grunenbaum Center for the Near East Studies at UCLA. Thank you so much for being on the program today. Thank you for having me. All right. Uh, and the Kaddish that I'm going to be playing here is uh, Ofrahaza. The Kaddish is for the victims of those engagements with Ariel Sharon. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. So, a curator walks into an art museum. Oh, actually, imagine my next guest, Dan Cameron, walking into Orange County Museum of Art's trove of its permanent collection and saying, I can see us showing works around themes like mapping here, the burbs there, the language of land here, defiled land there, paradise here, and so on. Well, after seeing the Orange County Museum of Art's Pacific Triennial a couple times last summer. I wasn't sure the same venue could pull off another fine one just with using its own works right after that. Well, with Dan Cameron's eye and thematic acuity, he's delivered. He's just started his third year at the museum, now re-examining the museum's collection and presenting works such as you will see at the current exhibit. As mentioned before on the show, Dan's many stints include the Aperto section of the Venice Biennial, the Central Sofia in Madrid, the New Museum of Contemporary Art in New York, the 2003 Istanbul Biennial, 2006 Taipei Biennial, the Prospect New Orleans Biennial, and the Contemporary Arts Center of New Orleans. Dan Cameron has published extensively, has lectured widely at museums and universities throughout the world, and served on the graduate fine arts faculties of Columbia University, New York University, and the School of Visual Arts. Welcome back, 
to Ask a Leader, Dan Cameron. Thank you. Thank you so much. (laughs) Well, the works of some 94 artists, some are familiar to residents, some artists are familiar to visitors as well as residents, and some are simply new marbles that you've incorporated. Congratulations on presenting such a fine show, Dan. It makes a great deal of sense in the way that you've organized, but how did you wrangle all of that art lying around into those themes? Well, first of all, thank you very much. I'm, I, you know, when you're in the middle of an exhibition, you know, you're just trying to think of how to make it work. And so you, you, you know, you hope that people are going to respond to it. And in this case, I've been very happily surprised at just how enthusiastic a lot of people have been. Uh, but, to, but to answer your question, you know, we have about 3,000 works in our collection. So one of the ways that I started um, sorting this out was to just go through that list of 3,000 objects uh, by artist and determine which of them were most likely to have made works related to landscape. So that was one sifting process. And then another sifting process was to go through the uh, vault. We keep our artwork in, in proper museum um, custom in a, in a in an undisclosed location. No, it's right here. Oh. <laughs> we shouldn't be telling anybody. The, it's 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 and in any case <laughs> most museums keep most keep as much of their work as they can as close as possible to okay. the people who are going to be working with it. So we have racks and we um I spent several days um with help and and sometimes by myself literally going through every object in every rack, pulling it out seeing what it was, and then putting it back again. And then every 20 or 30 or 40 works, something would come up that would suddenly be a, a real surprise to me. And so I would take a photo and set it aside and get the information on it. And then bit by bit, that's how the exhibition came together. Remarkable. Well, I'm, why don't you walk us through, uh, those themes are hugely purposeful, uh, did the work that you saw inform you as to what these themes should be, or was this construct already in your mind, Anne? Oh, no, the construct, the construct wasn't in my mind at all. The only thing that was fairly clear to me starting out was that I was, some, I was pretty certain that I, what I didn't want to do was to create a conventional chronological uh, ordering of the works. In other words, I didn't want to go from you know, late 19th century to first years of the 20th century to the you know 20s and 30s and, and take people on because I didn't think that kind of a walk, I didn't think that kind of trajectory would really be terribly meaningful to anyone. But then I thought, well, if we are combining these two ideas, landscape and abstraction, then wouldn't it be more interesting to arrange them into sort of thematic groupings so that each room has a different idea to it. And once I had that idea, we made little um, miniature versions of most of the artworks. And I started imagining for myself, working with the floor plan, what would these clusters, what would these groupings look like? And then once I started down that route, I began to suddenly tease out these different themes. So in the end, there's a kind of a chronology, which is about how people have responded to or connected to or, or, or represented the landscape in their work, in their art, and then how that, in, in many cases, um, kind of morphed into abstraction. Um, but it really wasn't clear to me until the entire checklist was finished 
how the sequencing was going to go, how how somebody would go from one room to another and encounter different very different thematic variations um, on the subject. Well, it, it does make a, the risk of sounding a bit on the obsequious side. There, it does it makes in complete sense as one walks through. So I think one needs to make sure that one starts with the very beginning of, let's say, the more the themes about the more pristine aspect of the landscapes. And, and that, I believe, one of the earliest is, uh, and it's an interesting one. I'm going to do the, the usual uh, attempt at the usual ridiculous exercise of bringing the visual onto an only audible medium. But we'll start with just briefly, we'll go through a, several ones I was going to think of. Tim Hawkinson's concentric circle, 705-year-old tree drawing the, done in 1989. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a beginning. That's a if you guys just a few just give us a little description of why you picked out of that one. What it's showing us. Well, as you know, Tim Hawkinson is one of the most inventive and creative artists um, living in Los Angeles, and and for many years, you know, people have um, people have really marveled at the sort of ingenuity of of his sculptures, um, some of which function almost as machines. He's got this really interesting inventors, tinkerers, <laughs> engineer kind of approach to, to making his work. But this piece, uh, you mentioned, is 99. So it precedes his fame to a slight degree. He was still uh, more of an emerging artist when he made this work. And uh, as he described it, his statement, he found a, um, a, a round wooden shape that was made from the outer rings of a, of a felled tree. So in other words, if you imagine, you know, cutting a, a, a tree, cutting a... A cross-cut like a, 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 Yeah, a cross-cut, say, 10 inches in depth, and then removing 90% of the center, you'd have these outer rings that, you know, continue to reveal the age of the tree, but you can't tell how old the tree was because you only get the outer rings. So what the piece effectively is, is Hawkinson's way of making, Hawkinson made a drawing uh, that went inside this frame, this wooden frame, that captured or, or, or recreated what he imagined the rings to be, so that once he's finished with these hundreds of concentric rings, he can finally uh, get to the center and make a calculation for himself how old the tree is based on filling in all these missing parts. So it's not scientific, but what it does do um, is remind us that, you know, that, that, that a tree was always a living thing, that it was always an organism. And it also finds, I think, a way of combining the idea of trying to have a, a scientific um, approach to, to nature and to trees and combine that with this kind of feeling that, you know, well, what happened to the rest of the tree? You know, why, why, why did the tree, how did the tree end up in this state? And then, you know, what can we do to comment, you know, on this? And, and, and in his sense, kind of restore it, if not to any sense of wholeness, at least to a visual situation in which you can imagine for yourself something of the story of that tree before it was cut down and transformed into what was likely uh, going to become a coffee table. 
Right. Well, before we go through a, a bit of a, a more of the survey, for those of you who've just joined me, my guest is Dan Cameron, Chief Curator of the Orange County Museum of Art, with the current exhibit on display, California Landscape into Abstraction, here on Escalator at KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming on the web at KUCI.org, either on occupied vistas or man-made landscapes. So uh, I want to just quickly move through a few other ones. Uh, in some cases, you didn't have very much information to go by. And there is Mary Finley Fry's cubist sort of rendering in her an Orange County barn she did in 1937. So you you wanted to include that even though, even though you were at a loss for uh, more information about it. And I thought it was a lovely tribute to this artist. Well, thank you. Um, I have not been able to find that much about Mary Finley Fry. Finley Fry, sorry, the uh, the trail goes cold um, sometime in the fifties. We know um, she married. Well, we know first of all that in the um, earlier thirties she was a student of Hans Hoffman uh, when he taught at at UC Berkeley. Um, Hoffman was really the first of the um, kind of preeminent. Uh, European modernists to settle on the West Coast and become a highly influential um, professor of painting. And Mary Finley Fryce was one of his early students. And she moved down to Orange County again at a time where it's, it, a lot of these um, um, <laughs> a lot of these points of connection um, have been lost to us. And the one thing that we have is this um, watercolor, which is a cubist. Uh, rendition of barns, Orange County barns. So what you see is kind of an, a, a normal-looking afternoon uh, scape. It's the, the painting, the watercolors from 1937. Um, but in 1937, to 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 look at an Orange County landscape through cubist um, uh, uh, screen or, or lens is really um, unprecedented. I mean, there was no one else doing this. So she was something of a of a of a of a pioneer in terms of combining modernist uh, impulses, which became much more evident among other artists, um, like ten years later or fifteen years later. Uh, but she was pretty early on, and you know contributed this beautiful watercolor, and then more or less seems to have vanished. And which was the theme for where her pieces exhibited? I'm trying to remember. It's called modernist variation. Okay. And okay. what it does is it focuses on early modernists, most of whom were very well-known, like Helen Lundeberg or Nicholas Briganti or John Altoon or Lee Mulliken, who had fully fleshed out art careers you know, that lasted half a century. Um, but in Mary Finley Fry's case, we don't know how it ended up because you know, we have her obituary and we have some information about her married life, but she seems to have stopped making art and didn't pursue it after a certain point in yes. her life. So that's why the trail goes cold. Okay. Then the next piece I wanted to bring up, because it's, it's an uncanny uh, choice uh, of the artist first, and then, of course, yours, but it's uh, Walid Besti. It's called mm -hmm. Island Flora Number 6, in a parenthetically labeled Route 101 Southbound, from his series called Terra Incognita, done in 2005. And that's sort of moving along the themes a little bit later. And now we're, we're in the landscape. There's an abstraction about what do we think is going on where we can't see where the native... Uh, Flora has resumed uh, its um, 
has, has returned in existence uh, in what you show us are the the meridians of the interstate system or the freeway system that 101 is not interstate. Yeah, that's right. It's 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 a way of of finding pockets of um, places where indigenous plant life have have sort of reclaimed a little bit of turf. And if you if you um, think about the highway system, uh, the freeway system in, in California, um, you know, there's the part where the actual road goes, and then there are the parts that we see as we're driving down the road. And those parts of landscape are, generally speaking, well manicured. They're, they're well taken care of. They have gardeners. Um, you know, the, the grass is cut. Things are watered. Trees are planted according to a certain way. The berms are beautiful. <laughs> and, it, and, it, and, it's, and it's quite lovely. But what we don't see are other points uh, that are out of visual range, uh, which, uh, for, by and large, are left to themselves. So if, if, it's, if, if there's a patch of land that's not going to be by motorists driving back and forth, um, the highway department, and, you know, you wouldn't fault them for this, say, well, you know, there's no sense spending money um, uh, maintaining uh, this, this area of land that no one's going to see, quote-unquote. So what, what the artist basically did was track down these places. You know, you can glimpse them at certain points where they're off or they're under or they're around behind something. Um, and he, he explored and tried to find... Um, sort of in-between spots along the medians um, of the freeway system where there was this growth, this new uh, burst of um, growing energy from indigenous Southern California. Plants. And the, th- the theme for this piece was? The, the theme, well, it's actually called First Impressions. Okay. And what he tried to do is with his camera make it seem as if, make he tried to make an image that, looked like an early representation of someone coming to California, say, in the 19th century, early 20th century, for the first time. This idea of you go into the forest, you go into this old-growth area, and you photograph it as something surrounding you, as this kind of vast metal organism surrounding you. Um, you know, and of course, in the hundred-odd years since those kinds of, of images were made, everything's been developed, everything's been, you know, manicured, everything is, 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 um, is now is real estate. But he's, his point is the only spots that are wild, the only spots that still bear a resemblance to that landscape of a hundred years ago are the spots that are neglected, that are invisible, and that are overlooked. And so what his photographs show us is that, you know, if you want to see what California... Um, uh, flora looked like um, back before all of this was was transformed to what it is today, all you have to do is go to the spots that nobody sees. Right. Go to the spots that are invisible, and you can return to nature. Well, I, I want to hop over now to another piece. Uh, there are, as I said in the introduction, there are many artists that we would recognize, and I, I want you all to find them when you get there. I mean, they're, so the, the, the veterans, the big names. And, um, and among them, uh, that I, I will mention this one because it was so striking to me, and I will never forget this. And I want, before I mention the title, what is, what is the theme where Dorothea Lange's uh, photograph is exhibited? Uh, Dorothy Lang's photograph is in a section which is called The Language of the Land. The Language of the Land. And in this case, her piece is called, it's a photograph, of course, A Very Blue Eagle, Tranquility, Vicinity, Fresno County. And that was uh, photographed in 1936. And I was 
dumbstruck with, and I couldn't leave that for for quite a while. You wanted to say what what brought what came to you in seeing that photograph in the collection of the Orange County Museum of Art, Dan? Oh, I was I was really startled by the work. Oh. I thought it was uh, I thought there was something very very tragic and violent um, that she was capturing in this in this image, um, and. You know, I, I made a mistake when you asked me before. The Dorothy Lang isn't in the section called Language of Land. It's actually in the section called Paradise Endangered. Later along the themes. Let, Late, it's one yes. of the later themes uh, in the exhibition. And uh, I thought that work was a very good characterization of, of you know, what, what it meant for early photographers, early documentarians of the, of the Western landscape. Um, their camera to encounter um, instances in which a thing of beauty... Uh, has been has been defiled, or has been um, you know strung up in this case. So she's very um, you know she's very aware of our kind of revulsion when we look at this. But of course, I think she's also trying to point out that uh, you know it, it's not that someone would destroy an eagle um, out of out of you know back then it wasn't a crime. So it's not that somebody would do, would do this out of evil or or or, or um, you know, out of malice, it's that, you know, earlier generations didn't have the same knowledge about um, our, about the conservation of our resources that we have today. So something that seems kind of almost like a throwaway image from, you know, 80 years ago, today we think of it as, 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 as quite brutal and, 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 um, and uncaring. Well, I, I think that there's so much to say about that. I guess I, I just want to hasten. I thought I saw a sort of a, a Christ-like sort of symbolism in uh, where this this uh, particular bird is hoisted up against uh, a, a rings of uh, rows of barbed wire in the breadbasket during the Depression. I mean, there's, there's so many themes there, and I, I just want to tip my hat to you, Dan, for including that in there. I don't think we'd ever see, I mean, most of us think of her portraits, and this, this is a very different portrait for her. Now I want to skip to, um, well, there, it's, it's a kind of a catty-corner positioning of two videos on display. At one end is Mungo Thompson's American Desert. I would call that a long wink to animator Chuck, Chuck Jones. And catty-corner in the whole building is Diana Thader's Wicked Witch. They're both vis- video projections. And could you tell us just briefly, because we're running out of time, uh, about those selections and any relationship they might even have with each other? Well, I, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're video works made by artists who are in the same community and roughly the same generations, but they take very different tacks. Uh, Diana Thader creates her work um, through using a camera to video camera to represent what's around her. And what the uh, piece is, which is called Wicked Witch, is using um, California poppy fields to simulate the uh, swoon that Dorothy does in The Wizard of Oz when the Wicked Witch casts a spell on her um, to cause her to sort of pass out uh, in the poppy field. So what, what Diana Thader has done is, is used these three-beam uh, projectors, these clunky old projectors from the, the 90s. The piece was made in 96 are from a little bit earlier than that. And she places them as elements on the floor so that in order to enter the space where the videos are projecting all around you, you actually have to negotiate your way um, around these, these 
these different projectors. So it's a room-filling image of, of this uh, poppy field that seems to have almost hallucinogenic uh, properties. At the other end, the Mungo Thompson, what he simply did was take um, something like over 70 Roadrunner Coyote cartoons <laughs> from Chuck Jones and edited out all of the Roadrunner and all of the Coyote. So all of it, folks. Constant. Everybody's got to mentally want to put them back in, but they are not there. It's yeah. that so still So all you get is that escape. little 2%, those little slivers of film where nothing's happening. And then he, he essentially strung them together in the original sequence they are. And what you get is a silent movie uh, showing you all of Chuck Landscape's very, very beautiful uh, renditions of the Southwest Desert. Um, without the interruption of you know beep beep and <laughs> and the um, you know the coyote chasing chasing roadrunner yet again. Indeed, well, it, some uh, that were at the press review with me were looking at how that might have been used in, its, in a hallucinogenic setting. So it's uh, there. There are actually there's a few uncanny ties in there. Well, I have to close. Unfortunately, I just want to mention to everybody this Thursday there at the Orange County Museum of Art there will be a light late night tour, six p.m. and then at, throughout the gallery. Then at 7 p.m. there will be an artist talk, and just before that will be an early evening for educators. So from 3:30 to 6 Thursday, there's a possibility. Then the next event, oh, wide openly, widely open to the public, will be the Studio Sundays, January 26th, and later on January. 23rd. But that's not all. You know, everybody can go to the website www.ocma.net for the Orange County Museum of Art to look up any other events, uh, including the second Sundays and all sorts of things that uh, planned around this. So Dan Cameron, a chief curator at the Orange County Museum of Art, thank you so much for your time today and for bringing to Orange County such a reflective stimulating, provocative array of a permanent collection that we could all be seeing. Well, thank you, Claudia. I'm really so so uh, gratified that, that you got so much out of the exhibition. Oh, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to get more. And uh, folks, if I say it's required viewing, I'm probably going to meet it. So <laughs> thanks again, Dan Cameron. All the best. We'll uh, talk when another wonderful exhibit comes around. Yes, we'll talk thanks. soon. Thank okay, you. Okay, thank you. Everyone, thank you for listening. Thank you.